The following podcast is intended for adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The Iron Realm Chapter 7 Sign from Father At first, Echo lets no one get near her, crying out and cutting the air with her dagger. The globe of light has taken the place of her face. She is an unnerving sight to behold. The girl retreats until her back is pressed hard against the hewn stone of the tunnel wall. It is clear that she is breathing hard. We can't stay here, says Stockholm. This light is going to draw attention. Lass, we need to move. The dwarf tries to grab her arm, but she senses that he is close and cuts him with a dagger. I said, stay away, says Echo. No one's going to hurt you, says Solas. We fought together. From now on, we look out for each other. I, says Echo. Kaylana, give me Kaylana. The girl with the long black hair slips forward through the ranks, balanced on legs that seem almost too thin. I'm here, she says, and Echo reaches out an arm to accept her, pulling her nearer as the others look on. Kaylana bows down her head, submissively, pressing herself to Echo's side. She does not look into Echo's face. Indeed, she cannot. I'm blind, says Echo, resolutely. It's a spell, illumination, says Kaylana. Will it pass? asks Echo. Kaylana peers toward Treya. They exchange glances, silently. Maybe the answer is in here, comes the voice of the halfling. Look what I found. The door has come open, and Temek has stolen inside. The group enters the room cautiously, Echo and Kaylana last of all. Echo's arrival fully lights the room, and the group sees that it is an antechamber, supported by two rows of eight pillars. At the far end of the room, there is a boulder. It is flat on the top, and might have served as a table. Treya shows her disdain when the halfling emerges from behind the rock with a skull. Len's face slowly shows comprehension as she moves about the room. Here, she says. The walls were painted once. She points to the surfaces and, with some imagination, images can be seen upon the walls. What are they? asks Tamek, going close to her. Len, suddenly trembling, goes down into a kneeling pose and closes her eyes. This is my father's house, she exclaims. This is the house of God. Up there, she says, pointing to the ceiling. The light, there, she says, pointing to another wall. The sacrifice, over there, she says. The slavery of his people, there. She points finally to the back of the room, behind the table. Salvation. I don't see anything, says Temek. There aren't any gods. They burned in the war before time. No, says Len, her eyes still squeezed shut. He is here. He is with us now. I am his vessel. If I will but accept his light. Father, 
help us. I am yours. I will do your bidding. If you will but show us the way. Treya stands by, silently observing, while Tamek looks at Stockholm in disbelief and finally says to him, She's crazy. Stockholm shushes him, and the rest of the group looks on as Len clasps her hands together, whispering something to herself again and again. A sweat breaks out on her brow as she clasps her hands together even tighter. Then, at last, after what seems like a very long time, Len opens her eyes, gesticulates, and stands again. Quietly, she walks around behind the altar where she recovers a pair of bones. She whispers a silent thank you before returning to the others. He is real, she says to them, confidently, smiling. He speaks to me. They look at the bones she has recovered, which she holds against her breast as if they are the most precious of treasures. Tamek opens his mouth to say something, but the dwarf stops him. Our father is with us, and he is going to protect us. We are safe with him. Even in this place, we are loved. I welcome you back for another tale of adventure and survival in the realm of stone, which has no end. Last time on Iron Realm, Echo the Rogue fell prey to a carefully hidden trap, which has now blinded her, and although the group is now armed, they continue to search for water, which they must have if they are to survive. Meanwhile, you have been empowered to join them using your own character, as well as your newly acquired mapping knowledge. So for those of you mapping along, role-playing along, throwing dice, or simply enjoying the ride, I welcome you all to today's episode of the Iron Realm. Secrets of the Maze Master, Maze Master, Maze Master. On today's Secrets segment... I'm going to talk to you about the way armor is used in the game. When attacked in combat, a character can much more easily avoid harm by wearing appropriate protection. A fighter or a cleric can choose from most any armor available, such as leather armor, chain mail, splint mail, banded mail, plate mail, and others. The heavier the armor, the more positive effect it will have upon a character's armor value. In general, the worst armor value a character can have is a 10, which would indicate no protection at all. Even so, a character with a poor dexterity score may suffer additional penalties, unlike some casual games where 10 is the cap in the Iron Realm, armor value can degrade to 11, 12, 13, or even worse. Factor in penalties for blindness, and a character's armor value can become absolutely horrendous. When I said we play Iron Man rules, I meant it. On the other hand, a character receiving sufficient coverage from ordinary clothing 
can experience an armor value improvement, while stronger protection, like leather armor, would allow the average character's armor value to improve to 7. Likewise, a character with plate mail armor and a shield would have an armor value of 2, or perhaps better if that character's dexterity is sufficiently high. Other factors, such as magic, can affect armor value too. And of course, certain types of characters are restricted in the kinds of armor that they can wear. A wizard, for example, can only wear normal clothing or robes. And while a halfling's range of armor is actually quite good, the armor must be sized to fit. Creatures in the Iron Realm have armor values too, and depending upon the score, they may be easier or more difficult for the characters to strike in combat. A creature with an especially good armor value is likely experiencing a bonus from natural protection, like tough hide, unusual quickness, or above-average alertness. When it comes down to combat, a point or two in armor value can make the difference between surviving the battle and becoming just one more to fall to the danger that lurks in the Iron Realm. You have been listening to The Iron Realm. If you would like to show your appreciation and support new episodes of The Iron Realm, visit patreon.com slash theironrealm and be you rewarded. You can also give a gift at drivethroughrpg.com using pay what you want or by taking a share of premium soft cover books ebooks, and gaming aids for your Iron Realm collection. And don't forget to leave your five-star reviews at iTunes at drivethroughrpg.com and beyond. Finally, tell your friends and spread the word about the world's first play-by-podcast RPG audio drama. Do what you can to ensure the continuance of the realm, your fellow travelers, and your maze master, thank you. From the eternal depths of the Iron Realm. Tribal Matters. It is 4.20 p.m. on the first day of Primaris. The characters are on level one of the dungeon. In the House of God. This room is located at 42 across, 6 down, and 43 across, 10 down. The characters have not yet taken water today. Len has dropped her stone and picked up two bones. Some characters have lost life points. Solus has 4 out of 8. Stockholm has 4 out of 10. And Len has 3 out of 6 life points. The tribe has 61 level points amongst them. These have not yet been divided. Echo is currently afflicted with a spell of illumination, which gives her a minus 4 penalty on all hits and effectively worsens her armor value by 4. Though Echo is blinded, her affliction serves to light their way. Finding no water in this room and nothing else of interest, the characters return to the corridor Before 
Moving back into the maze, the characters rearrange their marching order. In front, Solus and Kaylana. Right behind them, Stockholm. In the middle of the group, Echo. Behind her, Treya. And in the back, the halfling and the cleric. The tribe is best positioned to take advantage of the light that Echo is giving off. I'm going to pick up from position 41 across, 5 down, which is at the center of a T. The characters exit the T to the west. They find an L turn, which turns south. Exiting the L turn, the characters move one square to the south, two squares to the east, one square to the north, and one square to the west. Ending on position 39-6. The tunnel has spiraled into a dead end. The characters backtrack to the center of the T. Managing to avoid roaming creatures, the characters exit the T to the south, backtracking along the corridors they traveled before. They arrive at position 38 across, 22 down, which is a crossroads. They exit to the west. Next is an L-turn, which turns north, then a U-turn, which bends to the west. The U-turn dead ends, but there's a door on the south wall. Though Echo is blind, she is no more at a disadvantage than she was before when the group was in total darkness. So she moves forward with Stockholm to check the door. They find no traps. Stockholm holds up a hand, and the two of them listen as well. When they hear nothing, the dwarf motions Solus forward. Solus carefully opens the door and finds a room that is 20 feet wide and 60 feet north to south. The room is located at 33 across, 21 down, 34 across, 26 down. The room produces a horrible smell when the door is opened, and Solus can see that there is thick black mold growing on the walls, the ceiling, and the floor. He raises the back of his hand against his mouth and nose, and steps inside. After a cursory search, the group finds nothing in this room, and so they depart. The group backtracks to the T, located at 38 across, 19 down. From here, they exit to the west. They move one square to the west, two squares to the south, one square to the east, and one square to the north. The passageway has spiraled into a dead end, and so they return to the center of the T. The group continues to avoid roaming creatures. Stockholm pauses to update his map while the group catches their breath. They can hear the sound of something howling in the distance. Without a sound, the characters make their way down the tunnels. They push on towards the T, located at 31 across, 16 down, and exit to the south. They next encounter a U-turn, which bends to the west. As they exit the U-turn, they move one square to the north, one square to the west, and one square to the south. After this, they move into an L-turn, which bends to the west, then a T with the base pointed south. They exit to the west and find a second T with the base pointed north. This T links into the crossroads that the characters entered level 1 from. From position 23 across, 20 down, the characters exit the T to the north. They move one more square to the north, where it dead ends, but there's a door in the western wall. 
Echo and Stockholm check the door for traps. They find no traps. Echo and Stockholm listen at the door. Echo holds up her hands. She has heard speaking inside. The rest of the group takes a moment to listen as well. Temek nods and Treya. They hear the voices too. They are speaking the human language. But are they human? With no water and almost no supplies, the group decides they must chance it. With a weapon in hand, so that he can enter from a position of strength, Solus moves forward and turns the knob. Behind the screen, I present to you a very special bonus. In this room, there dwells a rival tribe. What follows is the random generation of those characters and a brief description of how they are armed and equipped. The dice say there will be five members in the rival tribe. In the interest of fairness, I will generate these five characters from the basic seven classes as I did for the original tribe. The first character will be a halfling. The second character will be a wizard. The third character will be a thief. The fourth character will be another thief. And the fifth character? Yet another thief. Hmm. It will be interesting coming up with a backstory for a tribe that possesses three thieves. I actually believe a group like this would definitely be challenged moving through the Iron Realm. So I'm going to suggest that the group once had a fighter as well, who has been slain. Looking through the creature description in my notes for the rival tribe, it is suggested that weapons and armor value are all assigned according to the type for each member. This strongly seems to suggest that the rival tribe is equipped, despite the fact that our first tribe began the game with nothing at all. Again, considering how low the rival tribe is, I think I will let the dice decide how well equipped they are. The charts do suggest that each individual in the group has a certain amount of personal treasure. I believe I will let that stand. I will roll for the group according to the following chart. On a hundred-sided die, a 1 through 20% indicates no equipment of any kind. 21% to 40% indicates that the rival tribe has acquired rocks or other makeshift weapons. A 41% to a 60% indicates that the group possesses basic clothing, decent weapons, and basic gear. A 61% to an 80% indicates that the group has good weapons, okay armor, and a good array of equipment. I'm going to say that an 81% up to a 99% indicates that each member possesses the best weaponry and armor possible for his or her type, and also possess an exceptional array of gear. If a critical 100 should show up, well, I'll just have to think of something special. And the roll. The roll is 33%. This group is worse off in gear than our original tribe possessing only rocks and makeshift weapons for their own defense. I will rule, however, that if the rival tribe has sufficient treasure, that it can be assumed they traded it during their journey 
for better weapons, armor, or gear. First, let us see what the halfling possesses. 60 silver coins. The wizard. 71 copper pieces. Two pieces of jewelry. The charts say the wizard has two necklaces. Each is worth 1,100 gold coins. Perhaps having three thieves in your party does have its advantages. Next, moving on to the first of the thieves. The first thief has no treasure. The second thief possesses 91 copper coins. And the final thief possesses a pair of earrings worth 800 gold coins. The dead fighter may have possessed some treasure too, but since I have added him as an afterthought, I will assume that any treasure he had has already been accounted for when considering the other five members. I'm going to assume that the rival wizard has Reader of Magic as a spell. Additionally, the wizard possesses Hovering Disc. Considering the great value of the jewelry that the group has, I'm going to assume that they traded it long ago for the gear that suits them best. For starters, I'll say each member of the group possesses a backpack and a belt pouch. The wizard possesses a lantern, a spellbook, and twelve flasks of oil. The halfling possesses a mirror, while the first thief possesses a ten-foot pole. Each person in the group possesses seven days of travel rations. Each thief possesses fifty feet of rope. Each member of the group possesses two large sacks. The halfling possesses a small hammer and twelve iron spikes. Each thief possesses a set of thieves' tools, handy for disarming traps and other such things. Each member of the second tribe possesses a tinderbox, which contains everything needed to start a fire. Each member of the group also possesses six torches. The halfling possesses a bunch of wolfsbane, and each member of the group possesses two water skins. The halfling possesses plate mail armor and a shield, and for weapons, a short sword and a sling. The wizard possesses a silver dagger and six normal daggers, all held on a strap against the chest. Each of the thieves wears leather armor, while one thief carries a roll of parchment as well as three bottles of ink for mapping. The wizard must have writing implements as well, so I assign the wizard four bottles of ink and a writing implement. And a quill for the second thief? Let's just call that a ten gold coin value. We're up to 516 gold coins worth of purchases so far. Let's keep going. Each thief possesses four daggers, worn in a strap across the chest. Each thief also possesses a sword. Finally, the fallen fighter possessed a shield, plate mail, strapped on the back a battle axe, and strapped to the belt a sword. In the fighter's boot, a silver dagger, and also on the fighter's person, a longbow, and a quiver with 20 arrows. The total value of all weapons, armor, and equipment is 744 gold coins. As a result, I'm going to remove the two earrings worth 800 gold from the third thief in exchange for the gear they have now. So concludes the initial detailing of this Iron Realm rival tribe. Iron Personas On tonight's segment, we delve into the profile for Stockholm the Dwarf. Stockholm is a dwarven male aged 49. 
He has black eyes and skin of an earth tone color. His hair and beard are black. He stands four foot ten inches tall and weighs a hundred seventy pounds. Stockholm is level one with ten life points. He has a strength of eleven, a dexterity of eight, a constitution of seventeen, a charisma of nine, an intelligence of twelve, and a wisdom of nine. Stockholm's preferred weapon is the warhammer, though he also fares well with the battle axe. Description: He is a stocky dwarf, broad-shouldered, squat body, thick legs, well muscled. Stockholm has black eyes and black hair. His beard is carefully braided. His eyes are kind, yet stern. His skin is of an earth-like color. Personality. Stockholm tends to be even-tempered and slow to anger. He exudes an aura of always having things under control, without being controlling. His steady nature tends to reassure others. Stockholm picks up responsibility willingly and enjoys challenges. He's loyal to his friends, but will give no quarter to hostiles and is not easily intimidated. Stockholm tends to live in the here and now. Uneducated in the scholarly sense, he is possessed instead of a depth of experience and a sort of tenacity that sees him through. He is not the type to question why things in this world are the way they are, but has instead a good sense of what must be done and the wherewithal to follow through. Combat. Stockholm is most at home at the forefront of a combat where he can put his tenacity to good use. The dwarf will usually face himself against the strongest opponent. When a situation calls for it, Stockholm will often place himself between the threat and his party in order to cover them during a strategic retreat. Homeland, Iron Realm. Although Stockholm does not remember his childhood, he has always had the sense that his spirit comes from another place, far away. For some years, Stockholm traveled the many mazes of the Iron Realm with his smaller companion, Temek the Halfling. Stockholm liked Temek, who he considered to be down to earth but clever. While crossing into new territory, for they were nomads then. They were captured by goblins. The goblins, seeing that Stockholm was strong, decided not to kill and eat him, but instead decided he would be a suitable slave for the mines. Knowing that Temek might not be so lucky, Stockholm convinced the goblins that they could get twice the work out of him as long as they were kept together. The goblins, not being the brightest creatures, believed this, and Stockholm worked twice as hard himself over the years in order to cover for the halfling's physical deficiencies. Over time, captivity and hard labor took their toll on Temek, and Stockholm's one friend slipped closer and closer toward depression and madness. If not for the dwarf's steadfast nature and unwavering dedication to his friend, the halfling may well have cracked completely under the pressure. Instead, Stockholm inspired the small one with dreams of escape and 
freedom and new places beyond the pits. When Stockholm encountered other slaves who had similar goals, he organized an escape and made it a reality. Family. Stockholm never had a clan that he can recall, but considers his new party to be his true family now. The men he considers to be little brothers to him, the women are his younger sisters. Even Treya, who is actually older than he is, he views in this way. The others, who are very young by comparison, tend to see him as the head of their family, almost fatherly. This concept is humorous to Stockholm, who still considers himself a young dwarf. Current. While the others are mainly relieved to have escaped the clutches of the goblins, Stockholm is thinking ahead to the next step. As slaves, they had no weapons or armor, and he knows if they are to find safety, they must have both. In the dark, the humans and the halfling are near helpless. He will look after them all until they can remedy their shortcomings together. The Iron Round, copyright A. Lenzo, can be found online at theironround.com and at theironround.blogspot.com. I thank you all for joining me tonight for Episode 7 of The Iron Realm. More adventure next time on Episode 8. Until next time, Travelers of the Maze, play hard or go home. Iron Realm! Step carefully and be well.